back to the Crimesmith podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Smith. This episode contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. I wanted to do something a little bit different this week. Instead of doing a case from the U.S., I've chosen one that happened in Japan, where I've lived for the past four years. I thought maybe I could bring a unique perspective to the story because I'm here, and I actually only live about 20 miles away from where the murders took place. It's fairly recent. The serial killer I'll be telling you about was only caught a few months ago. Takahiro Shiraishi preyed on the weak. He used Twitter to find women who were having problems dealing with their lives. Shiraishi sought out those in trouble and seemed to be offering them help in their darkest moments. By the end of this episode, you will know evil. The tiny studio apartment in Zama, Japan, where Takahiro Shiraishi killed and mutilated his victims, is only 15 minutes from his childhood home, where his father still lives. He paid just 20,000 yen, about $180 per month, for his roughly 140-square-foot studio apartment. Shiraishi moved in on August 22, 2017. He killed his first victim, Mizuki Mira, that same week. Mizuki Mira was 21. She lived with her parents in Atsugi, which is about 30 minutes away from Zama. Mizuki worked at a job placement agency and had her first meeting with Shiraishi on August 13th. Along with her friend, Shogo Nishinaka, Mizuki met up with Shiraishi at a park in Yokosuka for drinks. This is a common thing to do here in Japan. There's no open container law, so it's normal to have drinks in a park, especially in the spring and summer months. There were some reports that Nishinaka was Mizuki's boyfriend, but I think it's more likely they were just friends, especially since six days after their drinks in the park, Mizuki gave Shiraishi money for an apartment they were going to share. She had wanted to move out of her parents' house, and Shiraishi had offered to be her roommate. Mizuki had given Shiraishi 510,000 yen, about $4,500, to use towards the apartment. You may be thinking, this is a lot of money to give someone for an apartment that costs just 20,000 yen a month. When you run a place to live here in Japan, there are a lot of upfront costs we don't have in the U.S. In addition to the first month's rent and security deposit, you also have to pay key money, which is gratuity to the landlord and usually about one to two months rent, the agent's commission, which is another month's rent, a guarantor company fee, this is another month's rent, a maintenance fee, two-year insurance policy, and a lock exchange fee. All of this can easily add up to six or seven times the amount of your monthly rent. She could have also been giving him money towards future rent or furniture, etc. Mizuki went with Shiraishi to the real estate agency where he signed the contract for the Zama apartment. On August 21st, Mizuki left a note in the home she shared with her parents for them to find. I've read in some places that the note said she was going out for a while but would be back. Other places said the note stated she wanted to live alone. Shiraishi killed Mizuki sometime in late August. He gave her a sleeping aid, wrapped a noose around her neck, and hung her from the loft in his apartment. Once she was dead, he used a saw to cut off her head and remove her arms and legs. He stored the head in a cooler box, which he filled with kitty litter. He would follow this same pattern in each of his murders. Shiraishi said later that his main motive for renting the apartment was to have a place to kill Mizuki. Her friends described her as a kind and gentle person. Before he moved to his apartment in Zama, Shiraishi lived in Ikebukuro, Tokyo, the go-to spot for anime and manga fans. While living in Tokyo, Shiraishi was doing illegal scouting work on Neon Street in Shinjuku. 
Neon Street is a popular spot with foreigners, and many people visiting Tokyo go there to take in all the neon lights, nightclubs, karaoke bars, and restaurants. Prior to his scouting job, Shiraishi worked in a pachinko parlor, which is similar to a casino with nothing but slot machines. Pachinko is hugely popular in Japan, and though officially it's no longer the case, Pachinko is largely controlled by the Yakuza, which is similar to a Japanese version of the Mafia. Also largely controlled by the Yakuza is the world of sex workers and hostess bars. Hostess bars are a place where men go and pay a premium to have women pretend they're interested in them. Sadly, many Japanese salarymen are very lonely, and this is the only way they know of to get attention from women. Most hostess bars are just that. Men go in, spend some time with beautiful women who pour their drinks, light their cigarettes, and pretend to be interested in what they have to say. But some of them are fronts for sex work. I'm not saying that Shiraishi was in the Yakuza, just that there may be a link between his two jobs and the organized crime syndicate that just so happens to be involved in both activities. That may be how Shiraishi went from working in a pachinko parlor to recruiting women to work in illegal sex shops. He would recruit women to work in a sex shop in Ibaraki Prefecture, which is roughly two hours northeast of Tokyo. Shiraishi and the president of the company he worked for were caught and sent to prison for his quote-unquote scouting prior to his return to Zama. Just to clear things up a bit, Japan is divided into nine regions. Within these nine regions are prefectures. Prefectures are similar to states in the U.S., so Tokyo and Zama are both in the Kanto region. Tokyo is its own prefecture, and Zama is located within the prefecture of Kanagawa. I posted a diagram on the Crimesmith website. It's kind of difficult to explain without a visual. Now I want to tell you about Shiraishi's other victims. Aiko Tamura was 23. She lived in Hachioji City in Tokyo. Because she had some psychological challenges, she'd been living in a group home. It was only a week after her arrival at the group home that she began looking for someone to form a suicide pact with. Aiko loved animals and dreamed of working in a pet shop one day. She told her brother that the other residents in the home scared her. Prior to moving into the group home, Aiko lived with her mother. But unfortunately, her mother passed away, and Aiko needed to move to the group home because she was unable to live alone. Aiko had been taken out of school when she was in junior high and never returned. On the evening of October 21st, she met up with a friend. That was the last day anyone saw her. Security cameras at both the Hachioji and the Sobudai train stations captured Aiko walking with Shirashi on October 23rd. When Aiko's brother went to her room looking for her, he saw the Twitter messages on her computer. There was a will left in her room. He used a tracking app on his phone to get a rough idea of where his sister was. He gave all of this information to the police. On October 30th, police raided Shiraishi's apartment searching for Aiko. This is when the body of Aiko, along with eight others, was discovered. Shiraishi told investigators that he searched Twitter looking for any woman who had tweeted suicidal thoughts. He would build an online relationship with them, and after gaining their trust, he invited them to his apartment. There, he would have a brief chat, and then he would kill them. He admitted to investigators that none of these women truly wanted to die. Kudeha Ishihara was Shiraishi's youngest victim. Only a freshman in high school, Kudeha was just 15 years old. She was the only child and lived with her parents in Gunma Prefecture. Kudeha went missing August 28th. She left home that morning, heading off for the first day of school. 
According to her school, Kudeha had called that morning and said she would not be able to come in that day. She also posted on Twitter that she didn't know why she had bothered to do her homework if she wasn't going to school that day. One of Kudeha's teachers said that she was quiet and doing well academically. A classmate also said she was quiet. She would talk, but only if someone else initiated the conversation. Kudeha was an avid reader who loved manga and enjoyed playing video games. Natsumi Kubo was 17 years old. She was a high school sophomore and lived with her parents, brother, and four other family members in Saitama City. Classmates said that she was quiet and really enjoyed anime. When she was in junior high, she was very involved in choir. Natsumi went missing on September 30th. She told her mother she was going to the nearby supermarket to get lunch. She never returned. When she hadn't come back, Natsumi's mother began looking at her daughter's computer. She found that Natsumi had been researching psychiatry. She also found Natsumi's suicidal tweets, along with a tweet about how she hated her mother. Natsumi had recently confided in her family that she wanted psychiatric help. Akari Suda was a 17-year-old high school junior. She lived in Fukushima City. The principal of the high school she attended said that Akadi stopped coming to classes on September 27th. She was last seen at the school sports day on September 26th. On September 28th, she left a group chat with her friends, and later that day, her cell phone stopped working after being detected near Shiraishi's apartment. Friends said that Akadi loved to draw anime and manga characters, in junior high, she led the art club and designed the front page of a school booklet. She had plans to attend college, and her dream was to become a manga artist. Her father said she was cheerful and active. Hitomi Fujima was 26, from Saitama Prefecture. She was divorced with a young daughter. According to the manager at her former workplace, she was quiet and nice. On September 13th, the day she went missing, she left work earlier than normal. Co-workers said that even though she left early, she seemed hesitant to leave that day. She had plans to meet with another male acquaintance, but told him over the phone that she couldn't meet with him because she was going to meet up with someone she met on Twitter. Hitomi's family found a note that said she was going to kill herself, and they contacted the police. Hinako Sarashina was a 19-year-old in her second year of college. She lived in Saitama Prefecture with her parents. She disappeared on September 15th after telling her parents she was heading out to her part-time job. Hinako enjoyed drawing portraits of her friends and excelled in math and science. In high school, she had been a member of the drama club. Hinako's friends said that she had been quiet and shy until she got on the stage. Kazumi Maduyama was reported missing on October 18th. She was 25 and lived in Yokohama. Kazumi worked part-time at a convenience store. Her mother said she always had a smile on her face. She had reportedly been bullied in school when she was younger. The final and only male victim was 20-year-old Shogo Nishinaka from Yokosuka. Shogo was the friend of Mizuki Miura, who had gone to the park for drinks with her and Shiraishi. Shogo played bass in a Japanese grunge band and was planning on going on tour. He also worked at a facility for handicapped people. Shiraishi murdered him after Shogo confronted him about the whereabouts of his friend Mizuki. While researching this case, I discovered that there are several suicide websites and social media groups where people encourage each other to take their own lives. Although Japan is a very safe place with low crime rates, unfortunately, suicide rates here are high, nearly twice that of the U.S. 
police went to Shiraishi's apartment at around 4 p.m. on October 30th. The first thing they noticed was the smell and the several large coolers crammed inside the tiny studio apartment. A police officer opened one of these coolers and saw two severed heads inside. In total, there were eight cooler boxes, seven of which contained the heads of the nine victims and over 240 pieces of bone. There were several other storage containers that contained other body parts. Shiraishi had made plans with another woman he had met on Twitter to meet up on October 30th, and considering the fact that police found an unused section of rope in Shiraishi's apartment, I think we can understand just how lucky she is that he was captured before their meeting. Neighbors had noticed a smell similar to a sewage leak coming from Shiraishi's apartment for about two months prior to the discovery. Shiraishi had covered his windows with a thick material similar to vinyl so that no one could see inside. This was suspicious to neighbors because most people in Japan open their windows in the warmer months. Roughly one week before the bodies were discovered, some of the neighborhood housewives had witnessed three men bringing a container box to Shiraishi's apartment. It has been speculated that there were some potential accomplices, even some rumors that his father may have been involved, but none of this has been substantiated. Investigators said that most likely Shiraishi had killed the victims by attaching one end of a rope to the loft, which was about two meters from the floor, and wrapping the other end around the victim's neck. He would give them a sleeping aid, and once they were relaxed, he would knock the cooler they were sitting on out from underneath them. Because they were drugged and there was no slack in the rope, the women died. No specific procedure of killing has officially been released, but this is the most likely scenario. Shiraishi said that he killed them by, quote, hanging them with ropes from the room's loft, unquote. Shiraishi cut up the bodies in his tiny bathroom, and after putting the pieces into containers, he slowly disposed of the flesh and organs with his trash. In Japan, we sort our trash. So, for example, in my neighborhood, burnable trash, or trash consisting of things like leftover food or paper, would go out on Mondays and Thursdays. Shiraishi was disposing of the burnable parts of the bodies, along with his burnable trash, a little at a time, to avoid being discovered. Two of the victims had been murdered between one and two weeks prior to being found. The rest had been stored for several months. Shiraishi was arrested on October 31st, the day after police discovered the body parts in his apartment. Shiraishi's apartment sits on a quiet street near a nursery school an eight-minute walk to Ibutai Mei Station. For those of you who haven't had the chance to visit Japan, distance to a train station is a common way to describe a location. Like most Japanese neighborhoods, there are restaurants and convenience stores within walking distance. Shiraishi's apartment is also less than half a mile from Camp Zama. Camp Zama is a United States Army post where soldiers and their families live. Before it was Camp Zama, it was the Imperial Japanese Army Academy. The road it sits on was built specifically for the Emperor of Japan to travel on in order to review the graduating classes. Camp Zama is home to the U.S. Army Japan, 9th Theater Army Area Command, the United Nations Command, and many other units. As a Navy veteran who lives and works in Yokosuka, Japan, the fact that these murders took place so close to a military installation made this case hit close to home for me. Not to mention the fact that Shiraishi's apartment is a mere 20 miles from my house. 
I put some Google Maps screenshots on the website if you'd like to see exactly where his apartment is located. The apartment has been listed for rent, but is considered an accident property. In Japan, homes like this are offered at a steep discount because of the stigma that a Jiko Buken, or black property, has associated with it. These places are considered psychologically harmful. Japanese law dictates that any property where a death occurred must be listed as Jiko Buken. But there's a caveat. Though the real estate agent is required by law to inform the first tenant about the property's tainted history, no other tenants have to be notified. This means even if the house or apartment is only rented for a few months, the second tenant moving in may have no idea that a murder occurred in the house. So for any of you apartment hunting in Japan, keep this in mind if the property you're viewing is way underpriced. On the other hand, if you aren't bothered by it, a Jiko Buken is a great way to get a good deal. So getting back to Shiraishi, Japanese police seized a total of seven coolers containing arms, legs, and heads. Shiraishi said that he disposed of the remaining body parts in fields. Investigators identified the bodies by producing a list of possible victims from evidence found in Shiraishi's apartment, including bank cards. After narrowing the list, they used GPS data from their list of potential victim cell phones, and family members were asked to provide DNA samples for comparison. We can thank Aiko Tamura's older brother for Shiraishi's capture. He had contacted police after he had not seen his sister since the 21st of October. He and his sister were close, and they messaged each other online, which is a popular texting app in Japan, on a daily basis. He was concerned when she stopped replying to his messages on the 23rd. He had reached out to her friends, and no one else had heard from her. On September 20th, at 12.48 a.m., she tweeted that she wanted to die but was afraid of being alone when it happened. She was looking for someone who wanted to commit suicide along with her, so they didn't have to be alone. Her tweet had two likes and was retweeted 14 times. In total, Aiko exchanged about 730 text messages with Shiraishi. In one message, she stated that she wanted to die because she was tired. He replied, asking if she wanted him to help her. He wanted to know if she preferred to die by strangling her while she slept, or if she would rather be hanged. A security camera in front of Ibutai Station caught surveillance of Shiraishi and Aiko walking towards his apartment on October 23rd, the same day she stopped replying to her brother's text messages. It's unclear whether the apartment has since been rented out. The most recent listing for the apartment building was taken down in November of last year. I posted a picture of that listing on the website if you're interested. If you're having suicidal thoughts and need someone to talk to, Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 24 hours a day. If you're here in Japan, you can call the TEL Lifeline at 03-5774-0992 from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. every day. Thank you so much for listening to the third episode of Crime Smith. If you liked the story, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to see pictures related to the case, head over to crimesmith.com and check out the blog. To provide feedback or offer future episode suggestions, click the contact link on the website to send me an email. You can also send me a message through the Crime Smith Facebook page. Please join me next week for another episode of Crime Smith, a true crime podcast. While you're waiting, check out these other podcasts, Murder and Such, The Asian Madness Podcast, and Murderish. See you next week. Thanks for listening.